Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Do Preprint Servers Fix Publication Bias? So as we know, science has a bit of a problem. There's this element of unavoidable randomness in research, and when you combine that with a propensity to disproportionately publish notable research, you get two factors that distort our picture of the evidence. First, results that aren't sufficiently, say, interesting, they can end up unpublished and then unknown. Second, anticipating this, researchers might bend their research methods to force results to be interesting and therefore hence publishable. This is a practice sometimes known as p-hacking. The resulting biased presentation of evidence presents a challenge for science's cumulative project to better understand how our world works. But on the other hand, It isn't necessarily a bad thing that top journals seek to highlight research that challenges our existing beliefs about the world. Even if there isn't publishing space constraints when we're in a digital world, attention is still limited, and so it makes sense for top journals to curate the research that's most useful to an audience that's got limited time to read it. That could mean privileging research that provides evidence for some specific theory of how the world works. Uh, And you should see Franklin Casey's 2021 paper for a lot more on this idea. But the key is that not all journals have to fill that role. We could create a different set of publication outlets whose primary purpose is to just provide peer review, archiving, and search engine optimization services, and who aren't responsible for curating research for just casual readers. These outlets could then become a home to results that aren't publishable in top journals. And in fact, some journals like this already exist, such as the series of unsurprising results in economics, which has the acronym SURE. That would enable the full set of results to be discoverable for any given research topic, at least with a little bit of effort. And we might end up with poorly informed casual readers who only read the top journals, but inventors, policymakers, researchers, people who really need to know and really need to get an accurate picture of the actual state of the evidence, they'd be able to dig deeper and get the whole story. So would that work? One place to get some evidence on this is to look at our own existing experience with preprint servers. So preprint servers are places where researchers, typically those that have some kind of affiliation, they can post work that's nominally in progress, but it's actually usually pretty close to a finished product. They're not subject to peer review or editorial discretion, and so preprint servers could in principle serve as a home for research results that don't end up getting published, perhaps because of publication bias. And indeed, a non-negligible share of work that's on preprints is never actually published in a peer-reviewed journal. Bauman and Walrabe 2020 estimate that about 25% of working papers published on major preprint servers in economics never get published. Le Riviere et al. 2014 estimate 36% of working papers on archive are never published in a journal, at least one listed on the Web of Science. And Tsunoda et al. 2019 Estimate 59% of papers posted on BioArchive during 2013 to 2019 hadn't yet been published. So we have some evidence that these preprint servers actually do help mitigate publication bias. Finelli, Costas, and Ionitis, 2017, looks at 1,910 meta-analyses drawn from all areas of science, and they pull from these 33,355 data points from original studies. They then look at the size of estimated effects in each of these disciplines for those published in peer-reviewed journals and those published elsewhere, i.e. on preprint servers, but also in conference papers, personal communications, unpublished drafts, graduate theses, etc. 
So this latter group, which is a group of papers that hasn't been through explicit peer review, is often called gray literature. And Finale Costas, Finale Costas and Ionitis find gray literature articles do report smaller effect sizes than those in peer-reviewed journals. And that's consistent with papers on preprint servers facing less publication bias or less pressure to engage in p-hacking. But the effect is pretty small. It explains on the order of just 1% of the variation in effect size outcomes. Maybe that's not too surprising, though, in light of a finding from Franco, Malhotra, and Simonovitz, 2014, which I've discussed previously on this podcast. In their study of the social sciences, they found most null results were never even written up at all, much less posted publicly on some preprint server. And that seemed to be because researchers believed that these studies faced a hopeless path to publication, and so they just weren't worth the effort of writing up. In fact, restricting attention to the null results that did get written up, they were actually published at about the same rate as positive results. So one interpretation of all that is that sometimes null results are in fact interesting, and so they get written up. But in those cases, publication bias isn't really a problem anyway, because the results face a decent shot of getting published anyway. Indeed, preprint servers aren't really intended to be an archive for work that can't be published in traditional outlets. Instead, they're more like a parking spot for papers that are being shopped for publication in traditional outlets. Hence, I think that explains probably the relatively small difference between the effect sizes in the gray literature and journals. So, Franco, Mahotra, and Simonovitz have some work suggesting to us that papers in the social sciences aren't going to get written up and put on a preprint server if the results don't look publishable. Brogier, Cook, and Hayes, 2020, have some complementary evidence that when authors do engage in p-hacking, they do it in anticipation of the challenges they're going to face in publication, not in response to sort of pushback from peer reviewers. So Brogier, Cook, and Hayes look for the statistical fingerprints of p-hacking in economic journals versus economic working papers. And they're able to detect this because p-hacking leaves this different statistical fingerprint than just regular publication bias, which we've talked about in this podcast before. And to sort of think about it, imagine there's a bunch of results and we're going to plot them on a scatter plot. Uh, we're going to have on the vertical axis the imprecision of the estimate and on the horizontal axis the size of the effect we're estimating. And there'll be some region on here. It looks like an upside down triangle where everything in that triangle is not statistically significant. It's an upside down triangle because the more imprecise your estimates, so the higher you go up on the vertical axis, the larger and larger effect sizes are that you can't be confident that they're not actually zero. So we've got this figure in our head of a scatter plot and sort of an upside down triangle in the middle, and everything in that triangle is not conventionally considered statistically significant. Publication bias means that we're just going to sort of see a hole where all those results in the triangle should be. All those results, the, the points in there are just going to sort of disappear at at least a much greater rate. Publication bias is going to leave a different thing. All those results that are inside that region are going to get perturbed. We're going to try different methods around, and they're just going to keep shifting around until they lie just outside of that danger zone where they don't get published. And so we're going to see a stacking up, a weird stacking up of lots of results that just are barely statistically significant if a lot of p-hacking is going on. So Broger, Cook, and Hayes look for this kind of suspicious pileup right above the conventional thresholds for statistical significance. So they present data from every empirical paper published in a top 25 economics journal in the years 2015 or 2018. And if you look at this, you can kind of see a big hump in the middle 
which is this sort of suspicious pileup we just discussed. There's lots of papers that are published that are just barely statistically significant, which is, you know, very strangely convenient for these papers. But in our current discussion, the main point is we want to compare one figure that just sort of shows the extent of this in published papers to the extent of this in preprint versions of those same papers. And we want to see if there's a difference. And when we do that, we don't really see any difference at all. It looks like the working papers already had all that evidence for p-hacking baked in before they were published. So if we interpret this as evidence of p-hacking, it's telling us that researchers aren't really doing this when a reviewer complains and they go back and they change things. They're doing it before they even submit anything to a reviewer. Now, as an aside, it's also notable that peer review doesn't seem to do much to dampen this bump since they're the same between the working papers and the published papers. So you might be tempted to conclude that peer review fails to detect or correct p-hacking. But hold on, it could also be that the cases where peer review sniffs out p-hacking successfully just weren't ever published. Moving on. Now before we draw any strong conclusions about the efficacy of preprints or anything, we should pause to note the most salient difference between preprint servers and a peer-reviewed journal that's dedicated to the publication of quote, boring unquote results. The big difference is that a journal might provide professional credit that a preprint doesn't. So Franco, Malhotra, and Simonovitz write about null results never being written up, and we said that that suggests it might be because it's just not worth writing up this draft merely to put it on a preprint server. But it might be worth writing up a draft if you knew it would result in a peer-reviewed journal article somewhere, because you can at least list that on your CV under published and peer-reviewed papers, and maybe that's enough to sort of help you get tenure. So maybe that's enough to pull null results out of the file drawer and get them into the public domain. But in science, a successful publication is not just one that gets published. It's also one that's influential. So one proxy we can use for that is the number of citations received by a paper or a preprint or whatever. And Finelli, Costas, and Ionitis actually do look at this. They look at the impact of citations on bias. And when they do that, they find the same kind of effect as they do for publication. What I mean is that Work that is more heavily cited tends to exhibit bigger effect sizes. But again, the overall effect is pretty small. So taken all together, I suspect that the opportunity to publish null results somewhere won't actually make a huge difference to the prevalence of p-hacking so long as researchers continue to try and make big and bold discoveries. Because that kind of ambition seems likely to always provide this incentive to abandon projects that seem unlikely to, live, to deliver big and bold results, and also to draw researchers to methods that would seem more promising to deliver them. Now, I don't think that does mean it's hopeless, though. Uh, Broger, Koch, and Hayes' results on p-hacking in economics also found something else pretty interesting. It turns out that the extent of p-hacking varies a lot by methodology. Whereas there's no significant difference between preprints and publications, there are quite large differences in the extent of p-hacking, you know, as detected by their methods, among different kinds of economic techniques. Broger, Cook, and Hayes argue that something like 16% of statistically insignificant results in papers that use instrumental variables get shifted into the significant range via something like p-hacking. But only 1.5% of insignificant results using randomized control trials are shifted in that way. 
And that seems to suggest that methodological changes might be able to make a big dent in some of these problems. So we're going to turn to one such methodological innovation, pre-analysis plans, in a future newsletter. Stay tuned. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end-of-the-episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.